It's a sad day to be a University of Alabama football fan. A little over a week ago, the future Hall of Fame college football coach, Nick Saban, resigned as head coach. The successful and infamous coach for the Crimson Tide, though not always the most liked coach by opposing teams and fans, especially Arkansas fans, spent 17 years coaching there in Tuscaloosa. When put on paper in comparison, the successes of Nick Saban far outmatched most college football coaches in our generation, and some would even argue for all time. On his resume, he can boast of having accomplished some impressive feats. He won seven national titles, six with Alabama, one with LSU. That's the most of any head coach in college football history. He won 12 conference titles in his career. He won 19 bowl wins, putting him at number three at the all-time bowl wins list. His 249 wins with Alabama and LSU are the second most of any coach in SEC history, trailing only Bear Bryant. His 201 wins at Alabama is tied with Georgia's Vince Dooley for the second most wins at a single school in SEC history. Alabama won at least three games in 16 straight seasons under Saban, which is the longest streak by any program in AP poll era. His 84.7% win percentage as Alabama and LSU coaches is the highest of any coach in SEC history. Saban has led his teams to 109 weeks, ranked as number one in the AP poll, the most by any coach in college football history. From his team, he has had 49 first-round draft picks, the most of any coach in the common draft era. In 28 seasons as a college football coach, he never had a losing season. And aside from the various coaching awards he's won, four Heisman Trophy winners he's coached, Nick Saban has the bragging rights to also say that he's the only coach to win a national title in three different decades. ESPN analyst sat down with Coach Saban to hear from the horse's mouth why he chose to hang up the whistle and call it quits. Here's a brief excerpt of what he said. The interviewer asked, why did you decide this was the right time to retire? Saban replied, well, I don't think there's any good time, especially when you're a coach. Because once you're a coach, you think you're going to be a coach forever. But I actually thought as I was hiring coaches and recruiting players, at my age, it started to become a little bit of an issue. People wanted assurances that I would be here for three years, five years, whatever. And it got harder and harder for me to be honest about it. The interview carried on as Coach Saban basically says he's stepping down, not because of any health issue, but because he simply didn't have the energy and the endurance to coach at that level as he had been coaching for all those decades anymore. At 71 years of age, he recognized that even the most successful coaches, with all the assurance and confidence that he had instilled in thousands of players, students, fans, and scores of coaches that wanted to learn under him. He didn't have what it takes to remain that strong, that confident, and that successful forever. Friends, you don't have to be a sports fan to understand this sad but sobering and constant reminder in life. Good coaches come and good coaches go. And that's true for governors, politicians, presidents, 
They serve a term, and then someone else replaces them. This happens too with teachers, administrators, doctors, nurses, business owners, and CEOs. And friends, this is true for churches too. Even the best pastors out there are not exempt. They're used of God for a season, maybe even an entire generation, but they soon too reach a time when the Lord says, you have fulfilled your ministry. But they soon too will reach a time where the chief shepherd tells his under-shepherds to step aside and that he's raising up a new shepherd. And sometimes he just calls those under-shepherds home to come to glory. And think about it from a family standpoint. We know this is the same for parents too. One of the hardest challenges for families is letting go or saying goodbye. Kids eventually grow up and leave home. Moms and dads won't be young, strong, and mentally sharp as they once were. Some in this room already know the pain of having to say goodbye when moms and dads are no longer around. And friends, when we face these types of transitions in life, we get quickly reminded of this sobering reality again and again, don't we? That's true when leaders come and go, bosses come and go, friends, family members, anyone we've deeply relied upon when suddenly they're no longer there. But it's also a time when new temptations can enter our life. When we're tempted to become discontent with our present lot in life, maybe even envious of what God's doing in someone else's life, wondering, are there greener pastures somewhere else with someone else? If my circumstances change just like I wanted them to be, then I would be happy. We can become tempted to be anxious and afraid, thinking we're all alone and aimless. We ask ourselves, how will I face this? How am I going to cope with the unknown of the future? We can even be tempted to believe that God himself has forsaken us, that he's left us high and dry, that he's given up on us, that he simply does not care. Friends, if we embark on this new year as a church family, we should ask ourselves some honest gut, gut, gut check questions this morning. Gut questions like this. Who are you really trusting this year to provide for all your needs? Like really? Who are you really trusting this year, to provide for all your needs? Who are you trusting this year to help you face all your fears? What you're scared about? What you're insecure about? Who are you really depending on to be there for you? Not just today. Not even just this year but for the rest of your life. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 261, Psalm 23. And if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift in the chair back or the pew as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 23. 
Starting today and over the next six weeks as a church family, we'll be studying together some of the Psalms. If you're newish to the Bible and you're asking, what are the Psalms? It looks like it's pronounced Psalms. Well, it's just, it's the P silent there. The Psalms serve as the songbook or the hymn book for the people of God. In redemptive history, they were initially the songbook for the nation of Israel. God's especially loved and covenanted people that he had a unique relationship with. In fact, we have up to 150 of these psalms preserved for us to lean upon in both the good times and in the bad times. And friends, psalms have been dear to countless Christians since the time of Christ as they've helped Christians learn how to pray, learn how to confess their sins, and learn how to depend upon God and praise God in every circumstance of life. There are psalms of lament, psalms of praise, psalms of contrition, psalms of trust. Uh, Friends, the psalms are raw. They express the emotional roller coaster and the emotional roller coaster that sends us to a whole host of experiences. So I would encourage each one of us in here, if you're not reading the psalms as a regular diet in your life, I would encourage you to begin that. Whether that's one psalm a week or one psalm a day, I promise you, if you Give it a chance. God's Spirit will ignite your prayer life and your praising of Him if you incorporate the Psalms as a regular part of your diet. Well, the Psalms are also very vivid in how they describe what our God is like. So first of all, let's just get our theological framework. God is Spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones like us. But the Psalms are written in Hebrew poetry to describe and give us word pictures and metaphors of something of what he is like. So if you read through the Psalms, you'll hear God described as a rock, a mighty fortress, a reigning king, a righteous judge, our maker and creator. He's even called our shield, the glory and lifter of our heads. He's even described as a highly protective bird whose wings that we can find refuge and security in. He's called the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows, Israel's fountain, the awesome God who dwells in inapproachable light, whose enemies melt like wax before him, and whose children's and servants can rejoice and serve him. Friends, the Psalms are a wonderful place. If your prayer life is dull, I would encourage you to dive right in Psalm 1 and spend as long as you can in all 150 of them. They have thoroughly blessed my own life. Well, this morning, we will focus our attention on one particular vivid imagery, a metaphor of how God is depicted in the Psalms and throughout the Old and New Testaments. And that is the image of a shepherd, a strong, compassionate, fearless, merciful, and committed shepherd. Look with me now at Psalm 23, starting in verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, here's my main idea. I'll repeat it twice. Every sheep needs a shepherd. But there is only one shepherd you can trust with your whole life. Every sheep needs a shepherd. But there is only one shepherd you can trust with your whole life. As you notice right there at the very beginning of the psalm, the human author David doesn't waste any time describing what God is like to him. And thus we also discover something of how David views himself before God. First, David describes God, or the Lord, as my shepherd. Literally in Hebrew, verse 1 reads, Yahweh Ra. Yahweh, which is God's personal and covenant-making and covenant-keeping name in Scripture, is my shepherd. The word shepherd in the Hebrew is ra, R-A-A-H, ra. And it can mean a close companion or friend or, depending on the context, a shepherd. A keeper of sheep that intimately cares, like a close friend would, for his flock. The grammar of verse 1 could also translate it as David saying, Yahweh, or the Lord, is shepherding me. Uh, The word shepherd here is in the active participle, which is describing both what God is like for David by what he does for David. In other words, the Lord is his shepherd who is shepherding him. And specifically in this context, what the Lord is like to David And what the Lord does for David is revealing what God is like for everyone who trusts God like David. That is knowing God through a covenantal relationship. As Christians, we use the word covenant sometimes. What is a covenant? Well, it's a loving relationship bound with promises, warnings, boundaries, and blessings. In Scripture, covenants that God makes with man, they are based off his character. And they're based off his promises. Uh, We even see that there in Psalm 23, verse 6. If you go all the way down, how this psalmist bookended with this covenantal language. You know this there in verse 6. David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That if you like to circle in your Bible, the word mercy there is that very popular and well-used word throughout the Old Testament, hesed, which speaks of God's steadfast love, his faithful, committed, and loyal love for his people. In other words, this is God's wedding vows, if you will, that he is going to fulfill with the people he says he will be faithful to. But you also notice there in verse 1 how David begins this psalm in a very personal covenantal kind of relationship kind of way. 
by using the first person possessive pronoun in verse 1. Did you notice how he begins this psalm? The Lord is whose shepherd? We'll say it together. The Lord is... That's an important detail to hold on to. David doesn't view the Lord as a generic shepherd, a random shepherd, a nameless shepherd with a nameless flock somewhere out in a pasture in the middle of nowhere. No, David describes the Lord as my shepherd, not his cousin shepherd, not his brother shepherd, not a friend shepherd. He doesn't even say Israel's shepherd, though that would have been theologically true. No, the Lord is my shepherd. That means that David understood himself, friends, not as a strong, independent, and self-sufficient man. No, David viewed himself as a needy, weak, hungry, and helpless sheep. A sheep that was owned and loved in an intimate, close relationship with the Lord himself, the shepherd of Israel. And friends, he is the shepherd of the souls of all who know him by faith. We understand this kind of language. We use this language almost all the time. For example, CCBC is my local church. The Boylstons are my family, my people. 9519 Farley Crest is where my house is located, in a town called Fort Smith that I call my home. The personal possessive pronoun my reveals both the sincerity of David's heart, but also the saving nature of David's relationship with the Lord. Friends, did you know you can tell a lot about someone's spiritual life by how they talk about the Lord and how they talk to the Lord? Yes, people can use prayer all the time to be fake and phony. Trust me. They can use fancy theological terms, spout off Bible verses, all to cover up a false faith. That does happen. It was true in Jesus' day with the Pharisees, and boy, it is true in our day too. It might even be true with some of you sitting in this building this morning. Sometimes people offer prayers to God they do not know because it's in pretense and it's just a show. But the longer you spend time with someone, friends, you and I will know very well whether or not someone's relationship to God is legit or a counterfeit. Friends, think about it. Like a couple recently engaged to be married. It's obviously they're in love. No one has to try to force them to be giddy over each other. Like a couple having their first child that they've waited years to have, it's obvious their joy is made full at the arrival of their baby. Like a Christian seeing someone come to Christ through their ministry, it's obvious they are rejoicing of God's work before their eyes. And friends, when someone means a lot to any of us, they've captivated our hearts. We can't help but speak in obvious, personal, benevolent, loving kind of ways. Friends, that's how David described his relationship with the Lord. 
The Lord was not a theological concept. The Lord was not a pastime friend. The Lord was nearer to David in his affections than human beings to the left and right of him. The Lord was his shepherd, and David was not ashamed to declare it. Brothers and sisters, pray that each one of us would commit our lives this year to know God truthfully and to know him personally. I chose those words very deliberate. Pray that each one of us this year would commit our lives to know the Lord truthfully and to know God personally. And friends, we can only know God truthfully by studying the scriptures to discover the truth about what God is like, to figure out what God loves, to figure out what God hates, to figure out what God says of what is sin and what is righteous and our need for salvation. And yet we should also pray for everyone that God brings into this gathering and everyone that God puts in our life this year to have ears to hear the voice of our good shepherd. Ears to hear his word, which are the words of life. Friends, how will we know if we're hearing the voice of our shepherd? It will be revealed on how we respond to Jesus Christ. What you and I do with Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus figurine at some Hallmark store, the Jesus of the New Testament. What we do with Jesus, how we respond to Jesus, will tell a lot about you and I if we're hearing the voice of our shepherd. You see, Jesus Christ, the greater David, revealed himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. When Jesus was challenged and threatened by his fierce opponents in his day, calling him a demon, calling him a counterfeit, calling him a huckster, a liar, you know what Jesus said right back to his opponents? John 10, 24 to 27. So the Jews gathered around and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Beloved, the test of whether or not you and I belong to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is whether or not we're following his voice. Plain and simple. His sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. The reason why the Jews did not believe is because Jesus said they were not among his sheep. You know, you ever heard the phrase, you, you can't judge a book by its cover? Well, Jesus says you can judge a tree by its fruit, and you can judge a person's life by the fruit or the lack thereof they bear. Friends, are we following the good shepherd's commands? Or are we following someone else? J.I. Packer once said, God seeks his glory in our lives, and he is glorified in us only when we obey his will. Obedience is not optional in the Christian life. You hear that? Obedience is not optional in the Christian life. That's not a tough guy statement. That is biblical Christianity. 
Obedience is a test and tell-all of our spiritual condition before God. Faith-filled obedience or unrepentant disobedience will show whether our hearts are united to Christ or whether our hearts are hardened towards him. Jesus said in John 8, 31 to 32, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus also said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if David described the Lord as a shepherd, and, and David and all then Christ followers today would be called his sheep. So if many of us this morning are true sheep, we do belong to the good shepherd, we possess God's spirit, we hear God's spirit and Christ's voice through his word, then what should we expect as sheep in following the shepherd? As we think about God's will for our life, the future, the present, and even dealing with our past, what will it look like for every true sheep that belongs to the good shepherd, what will it look like to follow the path that our shepherd lays out for us? Well, to answer that question, this psalm will give us three distinct but closely related parts in explaining and describing what we should expect as sheep following the good shepherd. So in verses 1 to 3, David describes the Lord as, number one, the shepherd who provides what we need and leads us where we need to go. The shepherd who provides what we need and leads us where we need to go. That's verses 1 to 3. Then in verse 4, David describes the Lord as number 2. The shepherd who protects us. Not from all forms of danger and hardship. But promises to be with us through them all. The shepherd who protects us. Not from all forms of danger and hardship but promises to be with us through them all. And thirdly, in verses 5 and 6, David describes the Lord as, number three, the shepherd who takes pleasure in welcoming us with favor and blessing and remains committed to us indefinitely. The shepherd who takes pleasure in welcoming us with favor and blessing and remains committed to us indefinitely. Let's look at that first point together. The shepherd who provides what we need and leads us where we need to go. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. First, notice how David's confidence in the Lord as his shepherd, where does it come from? It comes from the sufficiency of the shepherd, not the self-sufficiency of David. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's not saying, I'm shepherding my own life. I'm marching to the drumbeat of my own commands. 
the Lord is my shepherd. And what is the response? What is the result of David looking to the Lord? He says, I shall not want. Admittedly, that phrase can be a little misleading. In our modern tongue, we use the word want to describe unfulfilled desires, wishes, dreams, cravings, fill in the blank. But that's not what David means here. He's not saying the Lord is my shepherd and I don't have desires anymore. The Lord is my shepherd, well, I don't want anything anymore. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what David is expressing, listen, is a heart that is content. A heart that is at rest. A heart that is at ease. A heart that is at peace. Some English translations, reliable translations of the Bible, put it this way, I lack nothing or I have what I need. How on earth could David say that? I mean, David wrote two-thirds of the Psalms. Jackson just did Psalm 143 a couple weeks ago. That sounded like a needy man who had lots of wants and desires. That, that sounds, I mean, you go back to Psalm 22. Look at Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. Look how it starts off in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the wounds of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Do we have a contradiction? How could David, as a sheep redeemed by the Lord, but still a fallen man living in a fallen world full of disappointments, suffering, sin, and pain, how could David say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, without lying, with a clear conscience, say, the Lord is my shepherd and I'm good. I'm content. My needs are met. I'm well supplied. Friends, it always goes back not to personality types, not to how you and I were raised, not how much money you and I have in the bank, not whether we are single or married this morning or have good health. No, David's sufficiency, his contentment, his peaceful and tranquility of heart is rooted in a bedrock. It is rooted in a foundation that God himself is self-sufficient. God knows everything David needs. God owns everything David needs. Everything David will ever need in this life to follow his shepherd, God has at his disposal. He rests content. He trusts God with everything because God has everything David needs. Oh, friends, do you and I believe that about our shepherd this morning? Everything you will ever need in this life to follow the shepherd, he possesses in his disposal. Friends, this is the Lord, the I am who I am. 
I have existed, I exist, and will always exist. This is the self-existent and self-sufficient one. This is David's God. Oh, and friends, he is our God too. David is saying this, the Lord is shepherding me. What more could I ask for? The Lord is shepherding me. Who else can outdo him in his care for me? Brothers and sisters, the secret of contentment in the Christian life that can actually be experienced in this life is something we can't obtain. But it's not a pill we swallow. It's not a button we push. It's not some humming yoga exercise that we do when we are stressed. It's not from a check we cash or a person we marry. No, the contentment in the Christian life is something we have to learn. And we only learn the secret of being content by trusting in God in every season of life. That's the good times. And that's the really bad times too. Friends, isn't that what the Apostle Paul said in his own life and ministry? Do you remember Philippians chapter 4? There was an extended period of time. He had planted the church in Philippi. He had depended on them for support. And then they lost contact. Three, five, seven years goes by. And he doesn't receive any finances, any support, really much communication with the church again. But you know what he said when Epaphroditus finds Paul and brings gifts to him after all these years? Philippians 4, 10 to 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who's the him he's speaking of? He's speaking of the Lord, the self-sufficient and self-existent triune God. You see, beloved, as finite creatures, we can only experience real contentment from our God when our focus is not on us, when our focus is not on our circumstances, but only when our focus is on the shepherd, the infinite one, the self-sufficient one, the one who possesses all power, all compassion. He's also the one who does not change. As one author describes God, God is who he is without us. He is eternally who he is from before we were, until after we have been. And he is who he is despite our life circumstances. What did Rick read earlier? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that means you and I can trust him with our yesterday and today and forever. Brothers and sisters, we should never develop our theology of God based off how our life is going in any given moment. 
that's about a million dollar word of wisdom that you need to go ahead and tuck away, maybe write down, because I feel like I say this in about 50% of my counseling. Never get your theology, your understanding of who God is, based off how your circumstances in life are going right now. Think how dangerous that is. Monday's great, Tuesday's okay, Wednesday's terrible, Thursday you want to die. Tell me what your theology of God's going to be like by Friday. We call that a train wreck in pastor circles, like a charismatic mess. We need a God who doesn't change. We need a God who's not dependent on my feelings, my emotions, and for people to do what I ask them to do. We need a God who does not change and is always good, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Friends, we get our theology from the scriptures, not our circumstances. The scriptures do not change. Wake up on Monday, living and abiding word of God. Tuesday, living and abiding word of God. Wednesday, living and abiding word of God. When I look at my Bible, ain't none of it changing. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 says this, all flesh is like grass, talking about human beings, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the strength of human beings. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, unlike your pastor this morning, David, who wrote this psalm, was an actual shepherd of real sheep. That means he hung out with these little cute animals that went, bah. he really did it. Michael Lawhorn is educating me and Amber on what it's really like to be a real shepherd. You should come out and watch me with the sheep and the hogs and all the other animals. As you may recall from 1 Samuel, David was a keeper of his father's sheep, Jesse's sheep. David knew firsthand what was really required to be a real shepherd because he had been one before. He worked the long days. He laid in the fields with them at night. He even defended and protected them with his bare hands. Do you remember what David said to Saul when David stepped up and took on Goliath? When he would face off with that arrogant Philistine? Notice what David said in 1 Samuel 17, 34 and 35. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. David knew that sheep needed protection. But David also knew that sheep needed plenty of clean water. Sheep needed plenty of food to eat, plenty of green grass to nourish them, and sheep need rest, a place to feel safe and secure. And that's precisely what David then turns the psalm back on himself as a sheep following the Lord as his shepherd. He describes himself not as a self-sufficient shepherd, but as a needy sheep looking to a shepherd to supply what he needs. Did you notice there in verse 2? He says, He, the Lord, makes me lie down in green pastures. Notice the lying down isn't by force or coercion. You know, the Lord gives me a, a, a DDT or a, or a headlock to make me lie down. You know, to make you lie down by coercion and force. 
No, he, he makes the sheep lie down by compelling care. My shepherd is near. Everything's okay. Sheep friends only lie down if they feel safe and secure. And the picture of sheep lying down in green, luscious, nutritious pastures is the depiction of health, vitality, stability, and safety. And David says that's what the Lord does for him. Again, look at verse 2. He says, he leads me beside still waters. In Hebrew, the wording could even be translated waters of rest, resting waters, quiet waters. It's also used elsewhere to speak of our eternal rest in salvation. Do you remember Psalm 95? It speaks of Israel's unbelief and how many of them did not enter into the Lord's rest. Psalm 95, 6 to 11. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's why David here is so confident in the Lord's shepherding care of him that it included more to David than simply the next meal. It's simply the next pool of water. David knew that this shepherd could also meet his greatest need, which is to provide rest and salvation for his soul. Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That word for restore can mean to bring back one's soul. Think of a lifeguard going out to find someone who's drowning and they're on their last breath, their last ounce of strength before they drown, and the lifeguard brings back that drowning person. To revive can also be brought into this picture. It's the picture of a heart that's been tainted by sin, dulled by sin, weighed down by sin, led astray by sin, and then brought back to repentance, brought back to restoration. He literally says, the Lord causes my soul to repent. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's why we all need to be under the word of God on a regular basis. Okay? So as an under-shepherd, let me say what that means. If you are depending on your spiritual sustenance to only be when we are here on Sunday, you will starve all week long. Think about it. If you ate only three meals the entire week, the entire week, not in one day, the entire week. How would you feel? Any brave souls want to answer that one? Terrible. Anyone else? Weak. Anyone else? How about cranky? 
angry, pathetic, an emotional basket case, confused. You know what else I would do? I'd probably eat some really bad food for you. When we get too hungry, we eat junk. Now take the illustration and apply it to your spiritual life. If you are in the Word three times in an entire week for five minutes or less, why would you and I expect our souls to feel any different? We wake up hungry because we're sheep. We wake up thirsty because we're sheep. We wake up tempted to be scared, anxious, aimless, and afraid and insecure because we're sheep. We're looking for pastures to graze in. And friends, we must graze right here. The meat, the milk, the grass, the water comes from the shepherd. And the shepherd speaks through his word. This is not a legalistic do this or else. This is where our souls find rest. If you want the shepherd to tell you what you need, you have to go where the shepherd's voice is found. Sunday is the long Thanksgiving meal that I provide for you. But Monday through Saturday, we must continue to graze and graze and graze because we're hungry and thirsty sheep. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And friends, when we go astray, and boy, we do every week, don't we? Can I get an amen to that? What does David say when he was brought back to the conviction? Come back next week. We're going to be on there for a while. Psalm 51. David's brought to conviction and repentance. Psalm 51, 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Friends, we already know that. When sin looks so good, it leaves us bitter and dry on the back end. Sin robs us of our joy in the Lord. Satan only comes to kill, steal, and destroy our life. But Jesus comes to give us life and life abundantly. Jesus comes to give us wholeness, joy, peace, contentment, fellowship, and fullness in him. That's why David here is looking over his life, which was far from perfect. And he recognizes that even if life doesn't go as planned or his life has been messed up, it's been jacked up, it's been tainted by his sin or other people's sin, following the Lord is always the right decision. That's why he says in verse 3, he leads me or he guides me in paths of righteousness. Literally right paths. Right paths that are only good for me. Right paths that bring God glory as he says there, for his name's sake. How about you and I this morning? Are you and I content with how the Lord has been shepherding us? Would others who know you well describe you and I as chronically discontent or a humble and thankful person? A constant complainer or an encourager who's learning the secret of being content? If you were honest with your own heart this morning, 
Do you find yourself prone to envy other people's lives? Coveting someone else's lifestyle? Coveting someone else's family? Coveting someone else's spouse? Coveting someone else's children? Coveting someone else's health? Coveting someone else's income? Coveting someone else's job? Coveting someone else's talent? Coveting up someone's good looks? Coveting up some fill-in-the-blank? Do you find yourself codependent this morning? Living even through another person to bring you joy. Parents, if we seek to live through our children, we're not raising our children the way God intends. We can never find our contentment and joy in life from our children. They are gifts from the shepherd but they are not the shepherd. Do you find yourself using your words, your feelings, your attitude, your moods to manipulate and control certain outcomes in order to get your own way? Friends, are you tempted in your life right now? Let's just get raw. Are you tempted? Imagine yourself in a sheep pen. There's the shepherd leading the sheep, and you're one of the sheep that's going, you know, I'm sick and tired of this pasture. I'm not really sure I even trust that shepherd. These sheep, they stink. I see some green pastures over there. I don't know where that shepherd's taking me, but I'm going over there. And you're that shepherd that tends to do this. Get closer and closer to that fence, thinking, I'm going to break free. It is so much better over there. This right here is scary. This is hard. This is not what I signed up for as a Christian. I'm going over there. Well, I can tell you I am. I'm that sheep that wants to bust through that fence. I don't care if it shocks me because sin looks alluring circumstances look better in other pastures. There are times I could care less what the shepherd wants for me. I want to look out for me, myself, and I. And you know what happens to Blake Boylston when he does that? He gets zapped by the fence. The good shepherd comes for me, and he takes that staff, and he takes my neck and pushes me right back into the flock. And he says, I love you. There are no greener pastures than the ones I'm leading for you. Oh, brothers and sisters, can you identify with that this morning? Are you a fence crawler? Are you a green pasture, window shopping kind of person? There are no greener pastures if the shepherd's not in them. Trust the voice of the good shepherd, not the voice of strangers thieves and robbers because Satan only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Oh, to my non-Christian friend, the first step to getting your life in order this morning is to realize we are sinners and we are sheep that have gone astray, each to our own way. And the bad news is, if the shepherd doesn't come for us, if the shepherd doesn't take our bodies, throw them on his shoulder, and bring us back to him, we are all eternally doomed. But the good news is, is that our Savior has come to seek and save every sheep that belongs to him. The book of Hebrews describes our Lord Jesus as the great shepherd, 
who by his own blood purchased and sealed the new covenant so that we now by his spirit is equipped to do everything he's called us to do in this life. First Peter says Jesus is the chief overseer and shepherd of our weary, wayward, sinful, and restless souls. The gospel of John, friends, I would encourage you this week, take John chapter 10. Let it be a feast to compliment Psalm 23 this morning. Why do I say that? Well, here's a summary of why. In John 10, we know that Jesus knows each of his sheep by name. He knows Jack. He knows Ashley. He knows Sarah because he purchased them with his own blood and he owns them. Jesus' sheep recognizes his voice and they willingly follow him. Jesus leads us out. Jesus goes before us. Jesus cares for us. He will not leave us like a stranger, a thief, or a robber, or a wolf that tries to deceive us. Jesus is the door through which we enter into the sheep pen to find green pasture. Jesus gives us abundant life, eternal life, and saves us so that we might rest beside still waters. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep so that the sheep would have life in his name. Jesus, now until the day of his return, is calling all lost sheep from all over the world to himself through the preaching of the gospel in order that there be one shepherd and one flock. He laid down his life on the cross. He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, and he raised from the dead by his own authority. Jesus promises to never, ever, ever let his sheep perish or be snatched away spiritually from his hand or his father's hand. John 10, 28 to 30 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father am one. If you struggle with the assurance of your salvation you doubt, as we all do from time to time. This is what brings rest to a doubting sheep's soul. That the hands of the good shepherd and the hands of the father are infinitely stronger than the little, bitty, weak hands of a sheep. He will never let you go. That is the joy and the assurance of a child of God. He will come for his own, and he will bring us home. Amen? David Gibson writes, When we follow the Lord, we cannot fail to be on the right path. Simply but wonderfully said. Our shepherd provides what we need and leads us where we need to go. Then in verse 4, David goes on to describe the Lord. As you notice there, the shepherd who protects us, not from all forms of danger and hardship, but promises to be with us through them all. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here David moves from speaking about the Lord's guidance to the serenity of green pastures and still waters and begins to describe a much darker scene. It's a dismal picture of a place he calls a valley, a ravine of the shadow of death. Whether David is speaking of death itself or dangerous circumstances, 
that can be life-threatening to lead to death. Either way, he's describing a scene that no sheep would feel safe in. In the valleys filled with dark shadows in this day, animals such as coyotes, wolves, bears, and even thieves could steal them away as they drew near in the shadows without the shepherds noticing. And yet David acknowledges in this psalm, friends, as a sheep, that no matter what circumstances awaited him, even life-threatening ones, they would not destroy his faith. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But how? How could David face life-threatening circumstances and not fear evil? He says, for, that's grounding his argument, you are with me. Who's the you? It's the Lord, his shepherd. And what did the shepherd have with him to comfort David when he was in really scary circumstances? He says right here, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was an instrument of authority used to protect the sheep. Actually, in fact, the book of Proverbs uses the rod to speak of corporal punishment applied to a child in loving ways to discipline them, to drive out foolishness from their life. The rod primarily would be used for protection, to fight off the wolves, to fight off the bears, to fight off the thieves. The staff was used more like a walking stick, kind of like an ancient GPS system used for walking through paths and clearing the way for the sheep. In that sense, the staff was a form of support and aid for the sheep. As already mentioned, the staff sometimes could be to rope the sheep back in. They're starting to kind of trickle in the back or get turned around, or be tempted towards a different pasture, the staff would bring them back. Come here, Harry. Come here, Sally. We're going this way. Because the Lord's protecting me, and the Lord is guiding me. The shepherd and his tools, they comfort me. Brothers and sisters, the promise in verse 4 that David rested on, is the same pillow we can rest our heads on each night as well. When you and I are tempted to be afraid, tempted we're all alone, tempted to say no one cares, tempted to believe the Lord's abandoned us, tempted to believe he doesn't hear our prayers, tempted to think he won't help us to fight temptation, that he won't rescue us from evil and ungodly people. Brothers and sisters, preach to your heart again and again, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you when you walk into that hard meeting you dread. The Lord is with you when you're holding the hand of a loved one who is dying. The Lord will be with you as you enter that doctor's appointment and get the diagnosis. The Lord will be with you when you're raising your children. The Lord will be with you when you have to disagree with your parents or in-laws and the consequences are costly. The Lord will be with you when you share the gospel with that coworker or friend. 
The Lord will be with you when the bank account is getting thin and you don't know how to pay the next bill. The Lord will be with you when you're unjustly terminated from your job. The Lord will be with you when you're looking for a solid church to join. The Lord will be with you through all the ups and downs of your marriage. The Lord will be with you when natural disasters affect your community. The Lord will be with you when you're slandered and ridiculed. The Lord will be with you when you teach that class. The Lord will be with you at that long, hard day at work. The Lord will be with you when you step into that pulpit. The Lord will be with us, CCBC, and our congregation, and our pasture of sheep, not just in the last three and a half years, but as long as our good shepherd wants this church to exist. And that's something to get excited about. Pastor, what's your vision for the future? I don't know. Consult the good shepherd. That's where I'm getting all my answers. He knows. He's the chief shepherd and overseer of the universal church, and he's the chief shepherd and pastor of this local church. So I do ask, pray for your pastor and pray for your elders. We are only good for your souls to the point we point you to the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, and equip you with his word to do his will so that your bellies are stuffed full of his food and that you and I can walk through whatever terrain he puts in our path. Pray for us to be faithful under shepherds to that end. Bob Utley has said, life is fearful, but God is with us. Let's just call it what it is. Life is fearful, but God is with us. Spurgeon said, your trials are peculiar, but your God is all-sufficient. Paul David Tripp says, God is working through your daily circumstances to change you. Beloved, we should pray about everything and let God do the shepherding. We should pray about everything and let God do the shepherding. Parents, we are called to raise, watch over, and care for our children, but the Lord loves your children more than you do. He has their future in his hands. Their souls are in his hands. We aim to be faithful. We aim to model Christ's likeness and we rest content knowing the Good Shepherd cares for all our family, all our friends, and our church more than we do. Know what David says next in this text. This might be the most dynamite part of my sermon prep. David does not say he will walk to the valley of the shadow of death. Oh boy, what does he say? He will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Friends, years ago, Julie and I took a trip from D.C. to Colorado. 2017, I'll never forget it. Not because the trip wasn't fantastic, but it was the plane flight. I have traveled over oceans. I've traveled over this country. I've been through all sites of terrain, but I have never in my life experienced the kind of turbulence we experienced on that airplane. No bad weather outside either, friends. We're flying into Denver, and boy, you know, after we get done with all that, you know, Julie's got makeup going down here. I look, I got a juggler of intensity. I'm like, oh boy. We get off the plane and our guest who were hosting us was named Bill and Tricia. Bill said, how was your flight? I said, it was the flight from a nightmare, Bill. He goes, why was that? The weather was good. I said, the turbulence. I thought the plane was going to crash. Look at Julie. Look at me. And he goes, Blake, do you know what I did for a living? I said, what? I flew for Delta for 30 years. I watched the monitors daily 
of all the planes that would go in and out of the airport all over the country, in 30 years of being in this industry, you know how many planes crashed because of turbulence? Like 0.0001%. Now, planes may crash from a malfunction, lightning, a bird flying into an engine, or some other failure. He said, but young man, that plane ain't going to crash over turbulence. Those things are built to withstand winds that you can't even conceive of. And I thought to myself, why? Would have been great if uh, had that knowledge beforehand, Bill. So it's kind of a joke for us every time we're flying. Remember Bill. Remember Bill. If we go down, it's not going to be for turbulence. It's something else. And he said, Blake, think about it for a minute. That pilot will fly that route how many times in a day? Two, three, sometimes four. Do you think he wants to crash? He wants to avoid the worst type of catastrophe more than anyone. A good pilot will keep you calm, and a good pilot will rest assured turbulence is coming, and we're going to make it through. Brothers and sisters, whatever turbulence you and I face in this life, no matter how scary it might be, that doesn't mean God protects us from hard or scary things, but he will be with us in them, and he will walk with us through them. He's just leading us to clearer skies and greener pastures, but sometimes you have to go through the valley to get there. Members of CCBC, trust God in every circumstance of life because even the valleys belong to God. They're God's valleys. The shepherd protects us not from all forms of danger and hardship, but promises to be with us through them all. And friends, that's even including death itself. That's why David says, the shadows of death. Death is not the destination for the Christian, it's the airport to take us home. Thirdly, verses five to six, David concludes this psalm by describing the Lord as the shepherd who takes pleasure in welcoming us with favor and blessing and remains committed to us indefinitely. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Banquets in the ancient world were often treated a generous guest with fine oils to anoint their foreheads, both for fragrance, but also a time of celebration. The well-prepared table, the guest would show up and the table's already set and ready to be enjoyed. It was a feast for the guest to embrace, to enjoy. The cup overflowing here is an idea of fellowship, of a meal with an intimate friend, all signs of mutual love and fellowship that you would find in a covenantal kind of relationship. The fact that David says this would take place in the presence of his enemies, which is kind of ambiguous on which enemies, where are they, what is he referring to? I tend to think it's as if the dangers of verse 4 that he was speaking of, the valleys of the shadow of death, he thought his life was going to end, whether that was Goliath, whether that was Saul, whether that was Absalom, whether that was a whole host of people, maybe even bears and lions, when he was caring for real sheep. Either way, in verse 5, these human enemies, these countless other enemies that went after David, 
David said that he would feast with joy because his shepherd provides for him in a victorious kind of way so that even his enemies watch him enjoy what God has provided. Not too long before his own opponents would harshly attack him. Did you ever catch what Jesus did in John 6? Remember the feeding of the 5,000? John 6, 10 to 12, Jesus fed the 5,000 and had them sit down in the grass to eat. Why did he do that? Because the good shepherd showed up to feed those hungry sheep. At the Lord's Supper, the Lord said, prepare a table for me. There's a guest house. There's an upper room where we're going to have the meal of the Lord's Supper together. Who was there at the Lord's Supper? It was weak, fearful, and needy sheep and one enemy, Judas. Friends, David's language here of verse 5 of the cup overflowing speaks of abundance, filled to the brim. Friends, that's Jesus' heart for us. That's what the shepherd wants for all his sheep, to know the love and contentment and peace and blessing and favor of knowing him by faith. Friends, as we turn from our sins and return back to the fold, having our hearts restored, our hearts revived, that's only going to happen if we turn to Christ. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot shepherd our own life. Only Jesus can do that. He hung on that cross for sins that we have committed, for a punishment that we deserve. The shepherd became the Lamb of God to take away the sin of my life and your life and to be raised from the dead so that we might be shepherded all the way home to glory. Friends, that's why in verse 6, David says what every true Christian can say of a confident assurance for the rest of your life. Listen to what he says. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word follow there, it means a relentless pursuit. When I was a little kid, we lived in a town called Bamberg, South Carolina. Small town, probably the size of Lavaca. My dad drove this old white Chevy S10 that you could hear from like a half a mile away, super loud. And there was always this home that we would pass by. It was the Tobel's home. That was the last name of the family. As boys, me and my brother loved passing the Tobel house because there were two dogs in the front yard waiting to chase every car that went down the road. So we would have these bets that, hey, Dad, do you think your Chevy S10 can outdo these dogs? Well, one was like a little weenie dog, so he just never could keep up. And then this other one was a mutt, and he could fly. And I can remember as a boy getting in that truck, and my dad would say, all right, hold on, boys. He would press the gas, and we would literally be racing a dog down a country road. Now, I'm, well, I won't say this. The kids will be scared. Maybe that dog shouldn't have done that one day. Not with us, but with another truck. But it's the imagery of a dog running after something he desires. The word pursue or follow here is the idea of a relentless pursuit to accomplish what it desires. Did you know that the Christian life does not depend on your desires and my desires being red hot for Jesus? 
It's the goodness and the mercy of the Lord that runs us down, pursues us with a relentless love to accomplish that which the shepherd desires. That means on our worst day, the Lord is pursuing us relentlessly to bring us closer to him. That's why a Christian can always say, he will never leave me nor forsake me. He's pursuing me. He is coming after me because I belong to him. Friends, you, you can get to know a real shepherd. You can read books on shepherding. I can commend books for you to read and see all the parallels. You know, what, you know why we're called sheep in the Bible? All right, get ready. If you're struggling with pride, we're all going to be humbled, okay? Sheep are dumb. They're weak. They're pathetic. They're scared of literally everything. As one author says, they have mob instincts. If one sheep freaks out, guess what the rest of the sheep do? Bah! And they run with it. They don't even pay attention to what, what, what are you afraid of? I was just do it. Guys, Christians do the same thing. It happens all the time. It happens at least a couple of times a month. Shepherding CCPC. We're, we're all there. We're, we're all like sheep. And guess what? That includes me. Before I'm an under-shepherd, I'm a sheep. I'm aimless. I can get it, be a fence crawler. I can want to beat it to another pastor. I need a good shepherd. We all need the good shepherd. We all like sheep are weak, dumb, and go astray. So the next time you and I struggle with pride, and you can see it in our hearts, go, bat, <laughs> bat. Nope. We're still sheep. Friends, as you think about 2024, who are you trusting this year to provide for all your needs? Who are you trusting this year to help you face all your fears? Who are you depending on to remain faithful to you? Not just this year, but for the rest of your life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Is the Lord your shepherd? Is the Lord our shepherd? I pray that it is. Let's pray. Father, you are our shepherd, and your son has come to lay down his life for us. And by your spirit, we can hear your voice through your word. And we praise you that you pursue us relentlessly, your goodness, your mercy, to draw us closer to you. Father, we pray this morning that if we have gone astray this past week or we're tempted to do it this upcoming week, Lord, remind us that our souls need to be fed the milk and meat of your word. And Lord, we pray for every church member of this congregation, including the elders and deacons, Lord, that we would always be reminded we're all first sheep before we're anything else. And so we need you to shepherd us. Father, we love you, we trust you, and it is well with our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.